Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mission Moonfire by Jack Lancer. Volume 5. Chapter 13. The Walled Villa. Chris needed only a moment to recover from his shock of surprise. This janissary was no ghost. He sprang out of bed and darted across the room. But the weird janissary had already taken flight, moving with lightning swiftness. The phantom streaked out onto the balcony and swung the French doors closed behind him. Geronimo was awakened on his feet as fast as a cat. He too caught a glimpse of the fleeing specter. The Apache dashed after Chris toward the balcony doors. Chris was yanking at the latch, but it refused to turn. He must have jammed it from the outside. With a violent twist, Chris freed the mechanism and pulled open the curtain glass doors. The ghostly janissary was gone. Over the rail, Geronimo said. Both boys rushed out and craned their necks into the darkness. A figure was climbing down the thick creeper which grew up the wall of the hotel. An instant later, he plunged into the shrubbery then scurried off through the moonlit gloom in the garden. Pursuit was useless. Did you see that getup he had on? Chris asked. Geronimo nodded. One of those spooks the professor was talking about, with phosphorescent dye on his clothes. What was he doing when you spotted him? Nothing. I think he'd just gotten into the room. But we'd better make sure. The boys checked their clothes, luggage, and other belongings. They could find no sign of any tampering or searching by the phantom. The yatagan from the restaurant was still in the dresser drawer. Chris rubbed his jaw thoughtfully. How do you suppose the creep got onto us? The Apache shrugged. Could have happened lots of ways. Maybe Fasil or his pal did report to their boss before they were nabbed. I don't think so. In that case, we'd have had a visit sooner than this. Last night, for instance. And probably not so friendly. What do you mean, friendly? At least he didn't slip us one of those poison darts or leave us a hole in the head to remember him by. He probably could have nailed us both. Instead, he just ran away. Seems to me more likely he was after information. That still leaves a few possibilities, Geronimo said. Hamid at the antique shop, Kane, Professor Cursell, any of them could have sent that guy, even Nilofer. Remember, she asked us where we were staying. True, so did Kane when we stopped at his hotel. Not that it matters. The guy could simply have tailed us here and then bribed one of the hotel employees to find out our room. Baffled but still uneasy over the weird episode, the teenagers finally went back to bed. This time they secured both the hall door and the balcony doors with improvised noisemakers to awaken them if the phantom returned, but the rest of the night passed peacefully. Early the next morning, the boys left the hotel, heading for a cafe on Bilakur Street. A taxi swung out from the curb and pulled up alongside them. Taxi Bilar! Chris was about to shake his head when he glimpsed the mustached driver. Mustafa! 
The agency guide chuckled, his rugged brown face wrinkling like a walnut. Up in, boys! Free ride! The teen agents climbed into the rear seat. You has had breakfast yet? Mustafa asked. Just going out to get some. Okay, I'll take you to a good place. He jerked the gear shift lever and the car lurched forward like a panic steer. I assume you didn't drop around just for the privilege of driving us to breakfast? No, Mr. Vogel, he's running that check on Major Kane. Figured you might want the lowdown on him. We do. Let's have it. He looks clean. He's a regular Air Force man. Got a chest full of decorations. What's he doing in Istanbul? He's on leave. He's stationed down at Izmir on the coast. Izmir? Chris frowned. That's the Eastern Mediterranean headquarters for NATO, isn't it? Yeah. This guy Kane, he's attached to the headquarters staff. Chris gave a low whistle and exchanged a thoughtful glance with Geronimo. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was a main military bulwark of the free world. As a staff officer, Kane would have access to all sorts of confidential data, data for which enemies of either America or Turkey would pay a great deal of money. Anything you fellas wants me to pass back to Vogel? Mustafa inquired over his shoulder. Yeah, tell him we had a visit from a ghost last night. Hastily, Chris filled in the driver on their adventures since their last telephone contact with the CIA man. A few minutes later, Mustafa dropped them at a grimy windowed cafe. It don't look so good from the outside, but that fat clown that runs it, he's the best cook in Istanbul. You just tell him, use his friends of Mustafa's. Okay, said Chris. Inside, the boys breakfasted heartily on yogurt, fresh-fried, delicately seasoned octopus, omelet, melon, and figs. As they ate, they talked over their plans for the day. I have a hunch one of us ought to keep an eye on Kane, Chris remarked. For some reason, the Moonfire gang wants that goddess figure. Sooner or later, they're bound to make another move. Let me watch Kane, Geronimo volunteered. How about you? I'd like to find out more about the figure itself, which calls for a bit of research. I'll have to play it by ear, but the local museums might be a good place to start. Outside the cafe, the boys split up. Geronimo headed for Kane's hotel. Chris, after stopping for information at the Turkish Airlines office, went on to the archaeology museum near the Tokopi Palace and the Museum of Oriental Antiquities just across the street in Gulhain Park. He spent the whole morning in the two museums, browsing among sculpture, pottery, tablets, and all sorts of artifacts. He also questioned several curators. Then, after a late lunch, he moved on to the Istanbul University Library to read about the Greek and Roman excavations along the Aegean coast and the ancient civilizations of Asia Minor. Shortly after three o'clock, there was a buzz on his wristwatch communicator. Chris hastily ducked out of sight among the dusty stacks to answer the call. Kingston won here. Geronimo spoke in Apache. Something's cooking, Chunde. Better get down here fast. Kane's having a secret powwow with somebody, and I think he's smoking the pipe with Dr. Death. Tote! Chris stifled a gasp. Where are you? A villa in the suburbs north of Istanbul, near the Bosphorus. I managed to trail Kane here in a taxi. 
He gave directions tersely. Okay, fine, stay put. I'll get there as fast as I can. He caught a cab outside the university and offered the driver a 25 lira tip to crowd the local speed limit, if there was any. Soon they were bucking their way through the traffic over the Galata Bridge, then bowling northward along the Bosphorus Coast Road. The taxi stopped near Ortikoy, in an area of drowsy sun-baked streets and scattered villas nestled among clusters of cypress, myrtle, and mimosa. Chris paid off his driver and quickly found the place where Geronimo had described. The villa lay well back from the street behind a high stone wall with a wooden-gated archway in the center. At one corner among the dense surrounding shrubbery stood a tall tree. Chris hurried to it and saw Geronimo peering down at him from the branches. Come on up, Trunde. The blonde agent grabbed a limb and swung himself up beside his body. From their vantage point, Chris could see down into the courtyard and garden. There was a small gatehouse near the archway, but its occupant, if any, was invisible from the tree. The pink stucco villa was U-shaped and enclosing a small inner patio with a wrought iron table and chairs grouped near a fountain. Where are they? Chris whispered. They're down there. At the table on the patio, Geronimo replied. Kane and someone else. They went inside about ten minutes ago. I couldn't see the other guy very well, but from his profile, I'm pretty sure it was Dr. Death. A skinny little old character with a monocle. Huh. Looks as though one of us may have to go in and wire him for sound. The boys flipped a coin. Chris won the toss. He dropped lightly into the courtyard from the overhanging branch and darted toward the villa. Several windows stood open. Chris peered into one and hoisted himself cautiously inside. He was apparently in the main drawing room of the villa. It was furnished in a mixture of European and Oriental styles with a huge, ornate chandelier, mirrors, divans, and cushions. No guards were in sight, but a faint sound of voices came from somewhere overhead. Tiptoeing, Chris made his way up a curving staircase to a railed balcony overlooking the main floor. He went along the balcony and around a corner into an enclosed corridor, then paused near a richly colored wall tapestry as the voices grew more audible. They were coming from a doorway farther down the hall. The conversation seemed to be in English, but one voice, thin and high-pitched, betrayed a guttural German accent. Holding his breath, Chris inched closer, trying to make out the words. An instant later, he froze with a start, as a sharp point of metal pricked the back of his neck. Then a low, deep voice behind him growled in Turkish, Put your hands up and do not move, or my scimitar will strike. Chapter 14 A Swinging Send-Off The growl threat and the tickle of cold steel set a chill down Chris's spine. As his hands rose slowly, one brushed the wall tapestry. Suddenly, Chris's fingers clawed at the hanging fabric. He ripped it down and whirled in a lightning sweep, using the heavy stuff to smother the scimitar blade and knock the guard off balance. The man staggered backwards, spluttering and cursing. Before he could recover, Chris leapt past him, heading for the balcony. A bellow of rage followed him around the bend of the corridor. The shout seemed to rouse the whole household to action. Two guards came running toward him. Chris saw he had no hope of reaching the stairs. Grabbing the rail, 
he swung himself over. For an instant he clung to the balustrade with one hand and one foot. Then, like a flying trapeze artist, he dived across empty space. With a straining gasp, he caught hold of the huge chandelier. There was a screech of rending metal as the impact set it swinging like a pendulum. At the outward end of its swing, Chris let go and dropped to the floor. Guards poured down the staircase as he raced with the windows. The chandelier was rocking and shuddering convulsively, its crystal ornaments tinkling like sleigh bells. A moment later, the last dangling shred of support gave way, and the whole monstrous assembly ripped loose and plunged downward, just as the leading guard passed beneath it. The chandelier crowned him with a clanging thud, followed by a noise like an explosion in a glass factory as it crashed to the tile floor on top of him. The guards behind him, unable to halt their rush, tripped and went sprawling across the tangle of limbs and wreckage. Chris never paused to look back. Reaching an open window, he leapt through and landed on a flower bed. A sentry had rushed from the gatehouse at the sound of the crash. He bawled at Chris to halt. Instead, Chris sprinted across the courtyard toward the overhanging tree. The sentry raised his weapon to fire, but Geronimo's pocket pen spat first. Pinked by a sleepy sliver, the sentry collapsed. Chris leapt for the tree and caught a limb. The Apache's hand yanked him up safely among the branches. Let's get out of here, Chris gasped. The boys dropped to the ground outside the wall and fled down the road. At the first cross street, they cut through a lush flower garden, came out of a high-walled alley at the rear, and plunged into a twisting maze of back streets and lanes. The sound of a car suddenly reached their ears as it skidded around a corner in top gear. Geronimo grabbed his body and pulled him down into a clump of bushes. A big gray Rolls Royce roared past with several of the armed guards from the villa. They're hunting for us, Chris muttered. The teen agents crouched in their hiding place for ten minutes. Then they emerged from the bushes and took off at a run, heading in the general direction of the Vosporus, where they finally caught a cruising taxi. On their way back to Istanbul, Chris ordered the driver to stop at a roadside cafe. Here he found a telephone and called the Suleiman Travel Agency. Vogel listened to his terse account of what had happened at the villa. Good work, the CIA man said. But you're both hotter than firecrackers right now. That janissary business last night probably means they have you spotted. I suggest a change of scene and some live fish at 8 o'clock tonight. Chris hung up with a frown. Live fish? Dinner at 8? The boys taxied back to their hotel, packed swiftly and checked out. You are leaving Istanbul, Belar? Yes, we're joining a friend on a motor tour of Turkey, Chris told the desk clerk. Oh, it is wonderful, a beautiful country. I am sure you will enjoy yourselves most heartily. Not a dull moment so far, Chris agreed. The cab dropped the boys at the Serkechi railway station. A few minutes later, after mingling with the crowd there, they caught another taxi. This time, Chris told the driver to take them to the Istanbul Hilton. The splendid modernistic hotel on the heights above Beoglu was the best-known hostelry for American tourists. Therefore, the teenagers hoped the last place their enemies might think of looking for them. By the way, Chris asked the Hilton clerk as they registered, what's the best live fish restaurant in Istanbul? Kanli Barik, of course, sir. 
It's on the Bosphorus at Saria. The seafood is magnificent all over Istanbul, but at Kandibalik, the fish are kept alive until just before they're cooked. You can pick out your own meal for the chef to prepare, in fact. Chris grinned. Might have known. Kanli Balik means live fish in Turkish, doesn't it? The boys wasted no time in unpacking. As soon as the bellhop had deposited their luggage and left the room, Geronimo turned to his buddy. What about Kane Chunde? Think we ought to put the sleeve on him? You took the words right out of my mouth, Indian boy. By all means, let's powwow with the bird soldier and find out what he was doing in the enemy camp. But we'd better keep our eyes open for Totes' men. The teen agents taxied to Major Kane's hotel, where they were informed of the desk that Kane had left. You mean he checked out? Chris asked. Evet, Efendim. He checked out before noon, but his luggage was still here. A few minutes ago, he telephoned and sent a messenger to pick it up. The boys walked out of the lobby, looking thoughtful. How do you read it, Jerry? The Apache shrugged. Gone with the wind, Chunde, which leads to a nagging suspicion that Tote has also quietly folded his tent. Back at the Hilton, the boys stretched out on their beds to await the evening appointment with Vogel. What about that museum research you were doing? Did it turn up anything? Geronimo inquired. A bit, not much. I have a hunch the figure came from Sardis. Where's that? About 60 miles inland from Izmir, the place where Cain stationed. It's the site of an ancient city, the place where coins were first invented, as a matter of fact. How did you deduce that the moon goddess came from there? Well, guesswork mostly. The workmanship looks similar to some pieces from Sardis that I saw at one of the museums. Also, the figure had an inscription around the base. I didn't get much of a peek at that, the way Cain was holding the goddess, but it looked to me like ancient Lydian. And Sardis, at one time, was the capital of the Lydian Empire. He paused. But there's only one hitch. And what's that? The Apache asked. As far as I can find out, they didn't worship the moon goddess at Sardis. Vogel was already occupying a table at Kanli Balik when the boys arrived there a few minutes before eight. He nodded bleakly as Chris and Geronimo joined him. Chris asked in a low voice, What's the word on our doctor, friend? Zero. I tipped off the Kinchi borough right after you phoned and a squad of Turkish police raided the villa. It was damn well empty. No trace? Nothing. Tote and company had cleared out. Ditto for Kane, Chris reported. We checked his hotel. He never went back there. Just sent somebody to pick up his gear. Vogel gave another nod, equally bleak. I know. He was booked on a 6.30 flight back to Izmir. Didn't show up at the airport, though. When is his leave up? Geronimo put in. Eight o'clock tomorrow morning, but the Air Force Intelligence is already putting out a dragnet for him. Vogel wrote a number on a scrap of paper and shoved it across the table. What's this? Captain Lomax, Air Force Intelligence. Call him at that number when you get to Izmir. The teen agents looked at one another with a slight lifting of the eyebrows. We are going to Izmir? Chris asked. Be a good idea. I think if nothing else turns up here. Try backtracking on Kane's movements. It's a hundred to one. Tote's gone to ground somewhere outside of Istanbul. 
But if he and Kane had been doing business, you might latch onto a clue there in Izmir. Early the next morning, the telephone rang in the boys' room at the Hilton. Chris answered, spoke for a few minutes, and hung up. That was Mustafa at the travel agency. Kane's now officially AWOL, and we have tickets for a 2.30 flight. Guess to where? The Apache grunted. Any objections? Chris gave a troubled shrug. I suppose not. Only I still think that Professor Gersell knows a few answers. Maybe too many for his own good. Abruptly, he reached for the telephone again. What are you going to do, Chunde? I'm calling Nilofer. You think that's safe? Geronimo objected. What if Hamid's one of the bad boys? We're supposed to have left Istanbul yesterday on a motor tour of Turkey. Remember that? I didn't figure on calling her at the antique shop. If her uncle's still laid up, she's probably home. Chris gave the Grissel's name and address to the hotel switchboard operator. She rang their number, and the girl's voice answered. Nilofer? Uh, this is Chris Cool. He heard a stifled gasp. I must see you as soon as possible, she said quickly. The same place we lunched on Thursday. There was a click as she hung up. Chapter 15. Dagger in the Dark Chris put the telephone down with a frown. What's wrong? the Apache asked. I don't know, but something has to be up. She wants to see us. Shortly before noon, Nilofer joined the boys at a table in Pandeli's restaurant. Her amber eyes darted fearful glances around the room. It seemed safer not to have you come to the apartment, she explained abruptly. I was afraid someone might see you. You mean the place is being watched? Maybe. I'm not sure, but I I was even afraid someone might be listening on the phone. Chris's eyes narrowed. Who, for instance? I don't know. Her voice faltered. The conversation paused as a waiter took their orders. Nilofer's gaze began flicking nervously around the room again. How is your uncle? Geronimo asked. Better, but still very ill. The doctor says he can see no one. I, I am sorry, by the way, for what I said the other night. About us causing your uncle's attack? Chris looked uncomfortable. That was my fault, Nilofer. I shouldn't have upset him. She shook her head. It was not your fault. I realize now that something has been preying on his mind. He's frightened, absolutely terrified of something or somebody. But you don't know of what or whom. No, you see, he was in shock for a while and incoherent. I could only judge from what he said. Nilofer hesitated and then plunged on desperately. Apparently, Uncle Selim knows something, some terrible secret, and because of that... There are people who might kill him. Perhaps kill me too. What people? Geronimo put in. I tell you, I don't know. That German scholar I mentioned, said Chris. Perhaps. Nilofer frowned thoughtfully. Yes, I'm sure he must be involved somehow. You saw the way Uncle Salim reacted when you asked about him. Who is this man? He's... He's a well-known German scientist, Chris said evasively. 
What about Major Kane? Major Kane? Nulifor now looks startled. Why him? My uncle has never even met the Major. You're quite sure of that? Of course. Well, at least as far as I know. Look, your uncle has always been a professor, right? I mean, he's never been mixed up in politics or any kind of plotting or intrigue. Certainly not. Then whatever he's afraid of must have something to do with his archaeological work. I... I suppose. Has he ever mentioned a moon goddess figure? The girl's eyes got huge. A moon goddess figure? Yeah. Does that mean something to you? M maybe. Please tell me about it. Well, Major Kane owns a small terracotta statuette of a moon goddess. He was carrying it when he was attacked by those thugs. We thought he might have been visiting your uncle, maybe consulting him about it. Nilofer shrugged. I don't know, but last night, during one of his spells, Uncle Salim gave me a message for you. The teen agents exchanged eager glances. What was it? Chris asked. He said to tell you to find the valley where the temple of the moon goddess rises to the sky. They were interrupted as the waiters served their food. During the meal, Nilofer, with her black long hair and glowing almond-shaped eyes, seemed like an exotic oriental statue herself, sitting stiffly and saying little. When lunch was over, she excused herself hastily. It would be best if I left here alone. The boys taxied to Yeselkoy Airport to catch their flight to Izmir. As the sleek airliner flew over the Sea of Marmara and Asia Minor toward the Aegean coast, they mulled over their meeting with Nilofer. What do you make of that Valley of the Moon goddess jazz? Geronimo mused. Not much, except that we're still up to our eyeballs in archaeology. Maybe. Then again, the professor may have been out of his head and raving. But the archaeology angle still figures, Chris argued. How else would Cain's moon goddess figure come into the action? I have no idea. But we came to Turkey to find Dr. Death in a ring of assassins, remember? Where does this all fit in? Well, for one thing, their war cry seems to be the moon is on fire. Chris frowned. Put that together with a moon goddess and we could be up against some kind of crazy religious cult. And ghosts, Chunde, don't forget. Ghosts in uniform. The Apache bared his teeth in a mirthless grin. Izmir was a bustling, pleasant port on a bay of turquoise blue. Once called Smyrna, the city lay spread along a hillside among farmlands rich in figs, grapes, olives, and tobacco. Its streets were white with dazzling sunlight and dotted with green-fringed palms. American GIs and sailors from the 6th Fleet mingled with its Turkish inhabitants. Warships rode at anchor in the bay. The boys registered at a sleek tourist hotel. Then Chris called the number Vogel had given them. A crisp American voice answered, Lomax. Kingston 1 and 2 here. Oh yeah, been expecting you fellas. Any news on Kane? Chris inquired. Negative. Hasn't reported back from leave and we've had no communication from him. Where does he live when he's on duty here? Apartment in town. It's empty. We've looked. May I have the address, please, sir? Chris said. Lomax gave it to him and the apartment number, and he added, 
Any particular plan of action in mind? Not yet. We'll check with you later. As Chris hung up, Geronimo flashed him a quizzical look. What's the drill, Chunde? I've got Kane's address. Let's go case the joint. The apartment was located in a busy quarter of town within sight of the harbor. The teen agents strolled past, keeping their eyes open. Do you want to go inside? Geronimo murmured. Chris shook his head. We'd better not. Tope may be having the place watched. The boys killed time for the rest of the afternoon and enjoyed a leisurely dinner. After nightfall, they managed to slip into the apartment building by a rear entrance. Kane's apartment was on the second floor. Chris picked the lock and they stepped inside quietly. They had scarcely closed the door when Geronimo froze in the darkness. An instant later, he dropped to the carpet and pulled Chris down with him. Someone's here, the Apache whispered. Chris felt a twinge of doubt. He had not heard the slightest sound. The flat exuded a still, stuffy air of vacancy, as if no one had set foot on it for days. Maybe Jerry's imagination was working overtime. All the same, his instinct had never let them down. Better not take any chances, Chris decided. How are we going to handle this? He whispered back. Split up. One buzz if you spot him. The room was pitch dark, except along one wall where traces of light filtered in through the not-quite-closed slats of Venetian blinds. From his sports coat pocket, Chris took out a fountain pen, unscrewed the cap, and held it to one eye. Geronimo did the same. The devices were infrared snooper scopes. Slowly, the boys rose to a crouch and then moved about silently, sighting through the scopes. Suddenly, there was a quick buzz on Chris's wristwatch communicator. He held it to his ear. Koya, over this way, came Geronimo's hissing voice. He's crouching behind something. Chris circled toward the target area. His scope picked out a reddish, ghostly form huddled behind the dark mass of an easy chair. Watch yourself, Chunde, his buddy warned. He has a knife, I think. As Geronimo spoke, his hand groped over a nearby table and closed over something that felt like a cigarette box. He hurled it across the room. Chris saw the man's head jerk up and around as the box crashed against the far wall. A split second later, a blood-curdling Apache war whoop split the air. The Indian had grabbed up a straight chair and was holding it as he rushed at the stranger. The man struck out wildly with his knife, but the point buried itself deep in the wooden seat. Chris lunged and hooked one arm around the man's throat. The next moment, the teen agent was swung off his feet as the man struggled upright and fought back like a trapped tiger. The fellow seemed superhumanly strong. Twisting and flailing his fists, he carried both boys with him in a moving tangle of limbs and bodies. There was no chance for judo tricks. Chris let go a whooping left hook that caught the man on the side of the head. Then Geronimo's clawing fingers found a pressure point under the man's ear, and he suddenly went limp. The boy stepped back, letting him slump to the floor. We caught a wild cat that time, Geronimo panted. Chris tightened the slats of the blinds and switched on a lamp. Somebody pounded on the floor above, and from the next apartment, an irate man shouted quiet in Turkish. The man on the floor was squat and powerfully built. He had the broad cheekbones and slant-eyed tartar look that Chris knew was sometimes seen among the Turkish peasants of Anatolia. Geronimo pulled the knife out of the chair to examine it. Another yatagan. Like the other janissary blades, this one also bore the inscription, Allah 
Beoktor. Was he here to kill Cade? Geronimo wondered. My guess he was after the moon goddess, Chris replied. Too bad we can't make him talk. He wouldn't have spilled anyhow. Not him. It was obvious from the depths of the man's stupor that he was not likely to regain consciousness for some time. The boys searched him. In one pocket they found a handful of loose blue-green worry beads. No wonder he put up such a scrap. He must have gulped one of these down, Chris remarked. From another pocket, Geronimo pulled out a small paperback book, finally printed in Arabic characters. Huh, what's this? Let's see. Chris leafed through the slender volume and translated the title page. Well, well. This is the Awarif El Marif, The Gifts of Deep Knowledge, by Sheikh Surawadi. Does that mean something? Plenty. It's a sort of standard textbook of dervishes. I ran across a reference to it at the university library yesterday. The apartment was small, consisting of one main room with a tiny adjoining kitchen and bath. While Geronimo poked about in search of clues, Chris went through Kane's desk, which looked as if the intruder had been ransacking it. He found nothing of interest except an appointment pad on which was written the name Purnell several times. Chris showed Geronimo the notations and added, Did you turn up anything? Just that doodad on the wall over there. Geronimo pointed to a small bronze plaque hanging near the door. Looks like it might have come from some archaeological dig. Chris walked over to examine it and whistled. The plaque was worn and weathered, obviously very old. This ties in, Jerry. It definitely came from Sardis. That lion and bull design shows up on all sorts of artifacts. It was an emblem of the kings of Lydia. So your guess that the moon figure must come from Sardis must be right. Using the phone on Kane's desk, Chris called Captain Lomax and reported what had happened. Okay, leave your prisoner right there, Lomax said. We'll deal with him. What about that name, Purnell? Does that ring any bells? Chris asked. No, not offhand, but it might be worthwhile to talk to Kane's secretary. She's off duty today and tomorrow, but I think I can reach her. Lomax promised to arrange a meeting for 11 o'clock the following morning. The next day was Sunday. Izmir had taken on a leisurely air. Chris and Geronimo sat in an outdoor cafe with tables along the quayside, looking out over the blue waters of the bay. Palm trees lined the promenade, and horse-drawn carriages clip-clopped past in the sunshine. Chris was just glancing at his wristwatch when a heavy hand fell on his shoulder. Howdy, fellas. Small world, ain't it? Chris looked up into the rugged, smiling face of Herkimer Nutley. <laughs> <laughs>